Hello everyone. It's nice to be with you today, wherever you are. We are continuing on in our series this fall that we're calling True North. We are reorienting ourselves again to the person of Jesus, whether as Jesus people or as people curious about what it would be like to follow Jesus, we are walking through his longest recorded teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. We often come back to a particular focus on the life and the words of Jesus in the fall as a church at the river. Maybe that feels rather intuitive to you, but maybe it's also important to say that in the midst of appreciating all of scripture and the wider story of God's people, Jesus, is our center point, our true north. Scripture tells us that in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All that we need and want to know about what God is like is there for us in the person of Jesus. And scripture also tells us that Jesus is our example of how to live the fullest human life. In his words and in his deeds, Jesus guides us to fullness of life. He is our true north. As we carry on in the Sermon on the Mount today, and really for the rest of the sermon from here on, we're gonna hear a lot from Jesus uh, instructing us about the way to live. And I wonder how you feel about being instructed, receiving instructions. I'm guessing for most of us that uh, we have to kind of get ourselves ready to receive instruction. Because how we receive instruction has everything to do with how motivated we are to learn what's being instructed and also how confident we are in the one instructing us, their competence, and maybe most importantly, their intent. Do we believe that they are for our good? My oldest son leaves for college this week. So as you might imagine, there's a lot of instructing going on around our house as we get ready to launch him out into the world this next step of independence and a lot of that has been um, pretty easy and even somewhat funnily joyful. Drew is uh, headed into the field of business and so he's aware that um, he needs to look the part for various interviews and other business gatherings so he has asked me to instruct him on how to iron a cotton shirt. Now uh, he's motivated to learn this because he wants to show up and not embarrass himself on first glance. Um, and he's also confident that mom knows what she's doing in this arena, not that I iron a lot, but I'll take any kind of ascribed expertise from my kids that I can get. So it's been a pretty easy and, um, like I said, kind of funnily joyful process of teaching Drew how to iron his own shirts. Now, my husband Mark and I 
are also concerned that uh, Drew continues to learn how to manage his own money as he makes this next step of independence. So we've also had quite a few instructive conversations about working with money and particularly about saving. And I will give Drew full credit that he um, always listens respectfully, but I can see and I do understand that these conversations are a little bit more difficult because they press into um, his uh, sort of increasing realm of self-control uh, or area that he has control over. And I think he can feel impinged upon a bit by the instruction that we're giving him and possibly uh, can even lead him to at least momentarily question our motives. Is it possible that mom and dad are really just out to quench my fun? The principle here is that the lenses through which we look on any instructor on any topic in our lives is going to significantly affect the way we receive that instruction. The lenses through which we look on an instructor in our lives is going to affect the way that we experience what is being taught. And that is really critical to be aware of as we head into a lot of instruction from Jesus. And a lot of that instruction is challenging instruction. Last week, Brad talked about Jesus bestowing the identity of salt and light onto his followers. Jesus' people are to be distinct in ways that preserve and heal and bring goodness. And now, in his sermon, he begins to unpack some of these core distinctions of Jesus' people. And we're going to talk about two of them together today. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, You shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus also said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Like I said, Jesus has challenging words. So how are we to receive them? What is happening here in these pairings of, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, what is Jesus doing? So your response to that, your answer, your suspicion, um, depends in significant part on what lenses you're looking through at Jesus. And I expect some of us might find ourselves surprised at the lenses that we find ourselves looking through. In a rational, um, kind of removed conversation, we are clear on the essentially good and loving nature of God. 
Nonetheless, at times when we're confronted with challenging words that feel restrictive to us in some way, it's possible that we find ourselves quickly donning a pair of dark glasses to distance ourselves and through which we can look with a bit of suspicion on Jesus. Because when it comes to authority of all kinds, including the authority of Jesus, Jesus as the one telling us how to live, many of us carry a reflex of caution within ourselves. Most of us have experienced broken authority, people or structures that haven't functioned for our good, and all of us have within us the instinct to independence, to want to stake our own claim, to say how we want to live our lives. So we wonder, as we hear these words, is Jesus just clamping down on us? Is he just tightening the circle of what's acceptable and what's not, basically setting me up for failure? It used to be enough not to murder, but now all forms of anger and name-calling are out of bounds. It used to be enough to avoid the act of adultery, but now, even if I look at another with lust, it's like Jesus is waiting just on the other side of that line, ready to gotcha. I was trying to think about how to encapsulate this image of Jesus when viewed through dark glasses of distance and suspicion. And I wondered if some of us don't live with a sense, at least in some part of us, that Jesus is like our very worst images of a tax auditor. With all due respect to real life tax auditors who serve a very important function in our society, but to the extent that any of us um, have cause to think about or to be in contact with a tax auditor, that's usually with a significant weight of fear, isn't it? Because the job of a tax collector is to go very slowly, very carefully, very meticulously through pages and pages, lines and lines of our financial information looking for any possible place we may have slipped up. And if we let our imaginations run with that image, I think it's not hard to imagine some kind of sense of twisted joy in the tax auditor when they gotcha. Is that what's going on with Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount? Is Jesus like our worst nightmare of a tax auditor? Well, the clear and simple answer is no. Quite the opposite, actually. But whenever we come to the teaching of Jesus, to his expression of authority over the way that we should live, it's important to let our honest, reflexive responses to his words and to him surface, even, maybe especially, when they surprise us. Because only when we acknowledge our honest resistance to Jesus and to his instruction can we open a conversation with Jesus and with trusted people 
in our lives about where that resistance comes from and how we might find our way to a new and more whole, accurate image of Jesus that invites us to hear him as he intended to be heard. Because Jesus is our example and our guide toward the very fullest picture of how to be human, of how to live a life of flourishing. When we take off our dark glasses and replace them with something more like polarized lenses, those lenses that bring a sharpness of clarity and crispness, making all the details easier to see. What we see in Jesus is not one tightening the rules. We see with Jesus concern for hearts that function well. Jesus isn't only concerned with keeping the law. Jesus is concerned about the kind of heart that we have, whether it becomes a heart that can lead to actions like murder and adultery. The British theologian N.T. Wright addressed um, this portion of scripture in this way. He said, in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes the commands of the law and shows how they provide a blueprint for a way of being fully, genuinely, gloriously human. This new way, which Jesus had come to pioneer and make possible, goes deep down into the roots of personality and produces a different pattern of behavior altogether. Jesus' instructions are not about staying within the lines, getting it right, or about appeasing God. Jesus' instructions are guidance about how to live fully alive. Through these lenses, you might imagine God as the very best of parents. Now, I'm aware that many of us did not receive parents who offered us all that we needed from them. God is not like that. God is the parent that you wish you'd had. He is the one who jumps in front of you to protect you from burning yourself at the hot stove. But not only that, he is the parent who teaches you how to use the stove so that you can actually enjoy it, how to manage the heat so that you can produce food that is pleasing to you and to all that you feed. So I'll say again, the lenses through which you look on an instructor significantly affects our experience of what is being taught. I feel like I cannot stress how important this is for us as we sit under the instruction of Jesus, which we're going to be doing together through the rest of this fall in the Sermon on the Mount, and you will be doing for the rest of your life for as long as you follow um, Jesus as your true north. So I urge you to be aware of the lenses that you look at Jesus through. Be aware, be honest, resisting any embarrassment or shame in saying um, truthfully 
that sometimes you experience Jesus more like your worst nightmare of the tax auditor than as your ideal parent. Because in that honesty, there's room to change. And to the extent that you find it hard to see God as one who really longs for you to flourish, I want to encourage you to take the risk of making that known and inviting someone you trust to pray with you, to ask that God would remake your reflexive response to him and his instruction for you. So, all of that about the lenses we bring to Jesus' instruction, what about the actual content of what Jesus is instructing us in today's passages? So looking at them as invitations to hearts that function well and to help us live fully alive hopefully helps warm us to them. But they're still challenging words about the dangers of anger and of lust. There is far too much to say about the dangers of anger and lust um, than you want to listen to from me today. So before I close, I would like to offer what I would call just a few initial reflections on both of anger and lust. And then I want to invite us into a time of imaginative prayer where we can have an opportunity to reflect on what um, we want to say to God and what God might be saying to us in light of these words today. That said, I don't want to be guilty of um, skirting the complexity of this scripture. Um, And more importantly, I want to invite us to wrestle together with our questions and with the implications of these verses. So um, Ihoma and I are going to offer another space of conversation on these passages on Sunday evening, October 1st. If you are local here in the Bay Area, we would warmly invite you to join us for that conversation. We plan to dive into these verses a little more deeply, but also just to have dialogue together about what these verses say to us and what questions they raise. So please plan to join us um, if you'd appreciate a space like that. So once again, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and sister, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him, or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. 
some initial reflections on Jesus' perspective on anger. For starters, it needs to be said that this isn't the only place nor the only way that the Bible addresses anger. Anger is an experience that requires discernment. Because there are times to be angry and our body and our heart's response of anger is often a means of our system communicating to us that something is terribly wrong, something egregious is happening in our world, globally or personally. Anger is often a way that we have a clue to unmet needs um, in our lives that are trying to get our attention. So anger needs discernment. What Jesus seems to be most focused on here and most clearly focused on here is relational anger. Anger that is personally pointed. And I hear Jesus saying that kind of anger always includes at least some seed of energy to harm another. And it's very clear that Jesus says relational anger must be addressed. I mean, Jesus seems to be exaggerating here to make his point um, clear and underlined and bolded. This idea of leaving your gift at the altar to his largely um, Galilean listeners, they would have been imagining being two or three days away from home at the temple in Jerusalem, ready to present their gift. The idea that they would leave their gift there, return the two or three day trek, make their reconciliation to return two or three more days before completing their worship was ridiculous. But it makes the point that we are to go out of our way to resolve anger with another person. Because when we allow relational anger to, to smolder within us, we become a little less human and we risk real injury to others. Jesus also pretty clearly says to us here that resolving things quickly when matters are smaller and haven't yet escalated is good practice. And many of us need to hear that word today. I wanna to say two other things about anger kind of in a pastoral way before I move on. And the first is to just acknowledge honestly that some of us listening have a well-worn pattern of anger in our lives. And that is going to require more intervention, more intentionality than Jesus' encouragement here to live in reconciliation with one another. Patterns of anger likely need um, help from others, very possibly expert help. And there's no shame in that. But there is urgency. If you recognize a pattern of anger within you, get the help that you need to begin to unearth what is underneath that pattern and how to get free of its effect on you and on those around you, because anger is a dangerous weapon. 
The other thing I want to acknowledge is that uh, not all relational anger can be easily reconciled face to face. There are situations where one party is unwilling uh, to the reconciliation process or possibly where it wouldn't be safe uh, for one person to approach another. And so Jesus' words can be hard to apply in those situations. And I want to encourage you, if you find yourself in one of those, to seek wise counsel about how to proceed. Jesus also says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. Here again, we encounter Jesus going to extreme illustrations to make his point clear. Lust, actively entertaining desire for another for your gratification needs to be addressed. It cannot be allowed to run rampant because lust dehumanizes. It dehumanizes both the one who lusts and the one who is lusted after. It would be an understatement to say that whole swaths of our culture trade on lust. And that reality trickles down to many, if not most, of our everyday experiences of living in a highly sexualized culture. The people of God are to be salt and light in the world as we resist and learn another way, the way of honoring one another as whole people. Now, I don't know why Jesus doesn't give more antidotes to lust like he did for anger, but I do know that like anger, patterns of lust are rarely um, resolved by a simple decision to stop. Patterns of lust in our lives likely need the support of fellow travelers, like a, a support group or a therapist who can work with us to untangle um, what's become tangled up and to live in a more free way. So as I close, I want to bring us back to the question of our lenses for Jesus and his challenging teaching his challenge and his challenging teaching. The lenses we look through are going to greatly affect how we receive these words. Because they're not they are challenging words, but they're not meant to be pinchy words, restrictive for restrictions sake. They're meant to be words of life, fullness of life, flourishing life life with hearts that function well in the world. So you may still find yourself receiving these words with conviction, 
That is an appropriate response. Condemnation, though, is not. Jesus really is like that ideal parent, wanting good for us, inviting us away from danger and into fullness of life. To that end, I would like to invite you to join me in an experience of imaginative prayer. In imaginative prayer, we trust God, the giver of our imaginations, to use our ability to form pictures in our mind to help us engage with God uh, more vividly. So if you're willing and you're in a safe situation to do so, not driving in the car, I want to invite you to just close your eyes um, for a minute and to take a couple of deep um, breaths as we invite God to illuminate our imaginations. God, that is what we're asking. We're asking that by your Holy Spirit, you would use the gift that you've given us of the ability to see in pictures in our mind's eye to help us connect with you. I want to invite you to imagine yourself in some place that you love to be, a place where you feel safe. If you have a favorite place to meet with God and to pray, you might imagine yourself in that place. As you see yourself there, I invite you to become aware that Jesus is there somewhere with you. Where is he? What do you notice about him? his posture, where he is in the picture in relation to you. Is there something you want to say to Jesus in the safety of this place? Share what's on your mind and on your heart with Jesus. And when you come to the end of what you have to say, at least for now, 
How does Jesus respond to you? What does Jesus say to you? Be sure to notice the tone of Jesus' voice in your inner ear. you to continue in this space for as long as you like. Letting Jesus show you himself more clearly. Feel free to pause our video and then when you're ready, you can turn it on again and continue along with worship.